as I went through some of this material uh, from Andy Stanley, just one of our mentors from a distance, uh, he just, this material for me was so meaningful um, and it was uh, really had an impact on me and, I, and just through the course of the summer, um, I just, God just placed on my heart and said, you know, we, it, we need to present this to the church. And so I just did, we're doing the best we can to present this to you as accurately as possible because it is for us very significant. And so we just want you uh, to have this information and hopefully for, it's going to be as impactful for you as it was for me the first time I went through it. So that's what we're doing. And just as accurately as possible, just so you can have this same information. And so let me kind of catch you up. Maybe you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks. Let me catch you up to where uh, we are right now. So what the, the title of the series is My Life and My Family. And then we're asking this question about your life and your family. And we're saying, am I taking responsibility for my life and for my family? For real. I mean, not just saying that. That's something that sounds good. But we're asking, are we doing, are we taking responsibility for my life, my family, for real? Are we really doing it? We all feel like we are responsible people. I mean, that's the way it feels. That's the way we think. We see irresponsibility around us in the lives of other people. I, I mean, we can spot it very quickly when someone is irresponsible, and we, we see that. But it is almost impossible for us to identify irresponsibility in our own lives. And so we're asking the question, my life, my family, am I taking responsibility for real? We discovered some things about responsibility over the past few weeks. So here's what we talked about. Uh, very quickly, here's the first thing. God has created you and created me for responsibility. And he's asked us to manage our responsibilities well. And we are, here's the second thing, we are the happiest in our lives when we are managing those responsibilities well. And we feel like something is missing in our life if we're not handling our responsibilities well. It kind of creates inside of ourselves, it creates conflict. Uh, an uneasiness. We're never at peace with ourselves if we dodge responsibility. And if we do that, it causes us to carry this load of guilt because we know deep down inside we are to be responsible. Some of us, we know what that feels like to carry that load of guilt because maybe there has been something in your life where you dodged some important responsibility. And maybe for years you have been dragging a boatload of guilt along with you. Here's the third thing we talked about. If that is the case for us, the third thing says this, then things will never be right between you and you. Things will never be right between you and you until you go back and take up that responsibility. Now, here's the fourth thing that we've talked about over the past few weeks. Your responsibility 
if you are, if let me use the word irresponsibility. Your irresponsibility eventually becomes someone else's responsibility. Let me say that again. Your irresponsibility eventually becomes someone else's responsibility. Someone else connected to you, either at home or at work, someone connected to you has to come behind you if you've been irresponsible and they have to clean up your mess financially or they have to clean it up relationally. Somehow they have to foot the bill. They have to carry your responsibility if you choose to be irresponsible. Now, last week, last week we looked at this invisible principle. It's kind of like the laws of physics that are there, like gravity and things like that. They're just there. They function. They operate. We don't think about those things. They're just there. There are also spiritual laws that are just in place all the time. And they function whether we think about them or not. And the spiritual law we talked about last week was this. It's the principle that, that drives this, this whole thing, is everybody always will harvest what they plant. And the two things about that that we mentioned, they're going to harvest that what they planted later. It's not going to happen immediately. It's going to be sometime later. And they're going to harvest it greater, meaning we will harvest more. And that principle, we can make it work for us. We harvest what we plant, and that can work for us in a good way, and it will be later, and it will be greater. Or if we, if we plant irresponsibility, we are going to harvest what we plant, and it will cost us. We will pay for that later, and it will be greater. In other words, irresponsibility always, eventually, catches up with us when that's what we plan. It'll be later and greater. So now we get to today. Sorry about that long review. Today, as we continue, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that perhaps maybe you've never looked at before. Maybe it's just this little tiny story kind of tucked in to the Old Testament. It may be new to many of you this morning. It's this obscure little story, but it has some enormous implications for what we're talking about with this series. So it has some far-reaching implications. It's in Joshua chapter 7. So if you're using a phone app with your Bible on it, you can look that up, Joshua 7. We'll get to the verse in just a moment, but they are going to be on the screen for you. But here's why we're talking about this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's going to address, because as soon as I said Old Testament, some of you may have checked out. Let me help reel you back in to help you understand why we're looking at this. It's going to address three different groups of us today. Here's the first group that it's going to address. For those of us this morning who are very religious, no one's going to admit this, <laughs> Yet, those of us who are very religious, who maybe have a tendency to hide behind the activity of praying, and perhaps they might use that to cover up irresponsibility. Now, those around you who are not believers, 
who may be people you work with or maybe could be even some people in your own family. They're not a believer. Those people around you might say something like this or think something like this about you. They might be thinking, well, I see or I hear them praying a lot, but I I hear them and see them doing these religious things, but I really don't see them doing anything about what they're praying about. I mean, I mean, I hear these prayers, but I don't see them doing anything. Maybe they should stop praying and start doing something. That's a pretty serious statement, isn't it? Perhaps, that this, and this, for some of us, some of us, some of you this morning even, have walked away from church at some time in your young adult life, perhaps because you looked around the church and you saw a lot of religious activity, but then you didn't see a lot of people really doing anything with it really in their lives. They just had this religious activity, but there wasn't a lot there of action, things really happening. So maybe you walked away from church because you just got frustrated with what you saw. And some of us who have been in church for a while, maybe you want those people to come back because they may be some of your family or some of your friends. You're like, man, I wish they would come back. And if we were to be honest, maybe even the very reason that they're not here might be because of us, because they've watched us say a lot of religious things but not really do anything about it. And so there could be this group of us this morning, and I'm not finger-pointing. I'm doing a lot of this, but I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I could could be doing this right here. (laughs) I could be doing all kinds of pointing, but I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm just saying maybe perhaps there's a group of us that we have a tendency to mask irresponsibility with religious talk. This story this morning is going to address that situation. Here's a second group, as if that were not enough. The the second group of us that this is going to address is those of us who have compassion, God-given compassion for others, but we apply it incorrectly. Now, this is pretty important. In other words, when you see an irresponsible person, instead of holding that person accountable, we have a tendency to make excuses for them. And and that's just misplaced compassion. In other words, they do something really irresponsible, and instead of holding them accountable, we have a tendency to say something like this, oh, bless his heart. He just had a he's he's just had a bad childhood, or or we say oh they just they just had such bad examples of how to do life from their parents. I mean, let's give them a break, or we say oh my goodness this kid this child just is not as smart as some of the other kids and they've just struggled in school, they've struggled with class. Now what happens when we? misplace that compassion and begin to make excuses for other people. Instead of holding them accountable and instead of helping them for real, we actually make it easier 
for them to continue to make irresponsible decisions. Now, as if all of that weren't enough, there's a third group that this Old Testament story addresses. And that third group is this. Um, it's for those of you, and this is pretty strong, it's for those of us that last week did not like the message at all. Not because of the way the teaching was presented, but we don't like what it said. And here's what it said last week. We said this, we are going to harvest what we plant. And some of you push back from that. And I understand this because I've had some conversations this week about this. We have a tendency to push back. And some of us push back from that and we say, but listen, okay, Harley, this whole harvesting and planting thing, I don't like that. I mean, because here's why. I feel like, you might say this, I feel like I have been planting the right things. I have been planting mostly responsible, correct things in my life. But I'm harvesting, you might say this, I'm harvesting my spouses. Or you could say I'm harvesting my parents. Or you could even say I'm harvesting my bosses or my co-workers irresponsibility. I mean, I've been planting the right stuff, but I keep harvesting what they have planted. And it's just not fair. It's just not fair. That's what you might say. And that's a big pushback from what we taught about last week. And I, I would agree. That's a tough one, Donnie. It's not fair. So help us jump into this Old Testament story, Joshua chapter 7, and let's begin seeing how this story addresses all of us right. fit into some of that somewhere. Right. So there, there's this really small but powerful story here in Joshua chapter 7. And we're going to kind of jump in um, to the middle of it just to wrap it into some context and, and tell you what's going on here. Let me just give you a little little backstory. So, so Joshua is the story of the leader of the Israelites, and he became the leader after Moses. So, so his job, Joshua's job, was to lead uh, the Israelites from this 40-year detour that they had taken wandering around in the, in the desert with Moses. And now Joshua is, is the leader of a couple million people, and, and he is to lead them into the land that God has promised them. So when we think about this, it can cause some anxiety. It can it can cause something to kind of rise up and just uh, because in order for this to happen, for in order for a couple million people to, to move into this, um, entire cultures and people have to be pushed out, have to be pushed out of the way, and in many cases even wiped out. So we look at that, and we may think about the the Native Americans or the Indians here in here in America, and we can think, you know, that's just just not right. So, let me just kind of explain what's going on here. So about because there is a difference right, there, in what is, happened in America, and then, but it still sounds so right. It can be viewed the same, yeah. but, but there is a difference. So, to tell you what's going on here, about six hundred years before Joshua's time, before the story we're going to look at today happened, um, God said to, to this guy named Abraham, He said, I, "I'm going to make you." A great nation, and I'm going to take your people um, from from about 400 years of captivity and slavery. I'm going to take them out of that, and and 
make this nation, and I'm going to give you this, this specific land. And it started with Abraham, this one guy. Um, and then years later, you have two million people. So, and this is where it can get difficult, you know, for us. We think, you know, why did God push out all these people um, to make room for this new nation? Uh, one of the most important verses in the Bible related to this story, maybe it'll help give us some clarity here. Uh, we can't we can't spend a whole lot of time on it, but even even the Old Testament as a whole, when we read it, we can think, oh man, there's a lot of death and destruction and and blood and you know just violence. So in Genesis 15, and you already mentioned this, but I just want to throw it again. It's like we're talking 600 years before the story that we're going to tell you today. Right. We're, and you already said this, but we're 600 years, years before. Right. 600, back yeah. up 600 years. Um, this is what God says to Abraham and tells him what will happen one day. And he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants. So, so God tells Abraham, hey, in four generations, basically in Joshua's generation, um, your descendants will come back here. So God was talking to Abraham when he was in this land, this holy land. And he said, you know, 400 years later, you're gonna, or 600 years later, you're going to come back here. Your descendants will come back here. You're going to be carried away and go on this journey and be in captivity and be in Egypt and all this. But he, and then he goes on and he says, in the rest of the verse, 16, he says, For the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached, or the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So, so here's what's happening. This culture at the time living in this holy land was so extreme, so pagan, that, that God was saying, I'm, I'm giving these cultures time to turn, uh, uh, to, to right their wrongs, to, to change. But if they don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the change. So to say, I'm going to wipe them off the earth. Um, th- these cultures, I mean, we, we live in a fallen and a broken world, but it's still hard for us to comprehend just the brutality of these cultures. This, this is not in our notes, but I want to make a comment here. Because this brutality that you're talking about, and it may be in our notes and I may have forgotten, <laughs> so I'm sorry. This brutality sounds so harsh and it sounds in contrast to the love that we see in the New Testament versus this harshness we see in this story. And I think an important point that uh, that I was taught this week was was this this where there is harshness from God he is addressing a very harsh very harsh culture. And so he meets it with ferociousness when it is a ferocious culture. Right. So the, the culture that was in place that God was about to push out did like unspeakable things to, to children, to women. And, and God was saying, I'm giving them time because I am, you know, I am God and and." You know, I am slow to anger, and I'm giving them time to change. But if they don't, um, you know, I'm going to completely push them out. I'm going to wipe them out. Um, and their, the, the way of life that they live, God didn't want them to intermingle um, with the, the nation of Israel. He said, God, God was bringing this new nation in the land, 
And he said, you know, I don't want them to intermarry with this culture. Uh, I don't want them to to even take their livestock or any of their possessions, their gold, anything like that. Don't take a single thing from this culture. I want to start completely new, clean slate. Move in, push them out. Um, and I've given them hundreds of years to change, and they have not, so they've got to go. And, and this brings us to our story today of, of Joshua. And, and Joshua had just led the uh, victory over a major fortified city um, that God had instructed them to take. One of the largest cities in the area, a huge stronghold. And the next city was a much smaller city, a little teeny city of Ai. Um, very insignificant compared to what they just done. Yeah. So this little tiny city of Ai, they're getting ready to go in and do this, basically do the same thing, just in a different way. And they're going to take over this city as well. Now, here's something Joshua was not aware of, though. As they defeated this big city that um, Donnie was just talking about, as they defeated that, God told them, as Donnie said, leave everything, don't touch the gold, don't touch the silver, don't touch the jewels, don't touch anything, leave it all, the, the livestock, everything, just leave it. And that's not what they were used to in that culture because they got spoils of the war, of the battle. But God said, in this situation, as we're moving through here, don't touch any of this stuff. And that was all fine and dandy, except for one man who found it very difficult. And as he passed some treasure, as he passed some gold, he was thinking, well, I mean, why, why leave this? It's such a waste. I mean, somebody's going to get it somewhere out there. It might as well be me. It'll help me and my family. And so he brings it back. He brings back some of this wealth to his family, to his tent, and he buried it in a corner of his tent. And now Joshua is ready to move through this next itty-bitty little city of Ai, and he didn't know that this had happened. So we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 2, and just listen to the story kind of unfold here. He says, Joshua sent out some of the men from Jericho to spy out this, the town of Ai. Uh, and it says it's east of Bethel near Beth uh, And When we read this and we talk about these, these places, that means absolutely nothing to us. Um, but these were real cities real places. It's like saying to us, you know, um, they went to this little small town between Stuttgart and, and Pine Bluff. You know, they went to Humphrey. Uh, I was thinking Wabasika. Somewhere. But, but these were, when early readers read this, they knew exactly where they were talking about. Like, oh yeah, we know, we know right where they're talking about. It wasn't fantasy. It was real places. Verse 3 continues. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since there are so few of them, don't make all of the people struggle to go up there. Basically, hey, it's a tiny town. Um, you know, it's nothing compared to what we've taken before. You know, don't make all of us, don't make all of us go through the trouble rounding everyone up and going, let's just take, you know, a couple thousand people. So, verse 4, so approximately 3,000 warriors were sent. Plenty, plenty to defeat the city, but says they were soundly defeated. This tiny town had a huge victory 
over the Israelites and, and sent them running scared. Um, it says, the, the men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries. Again, doesn't mean anything to us, but early readers would say, oh yeah, I know exactly. You know, they chased them out of town right to that spot right there. The verse continues, it says, And they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. You know, this wasn't supposed to happen. Um, they were now frightened, and, and they were probably thinking, you know, God, did you abandon us? What's up? What happened? Um, they should have easily rode over the city, but instead this tiny city just just hammered them and chased them out of town. In verse 6 it says, Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothes, clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. They were saying, God, what happened? Where were you? You, you, you let us down, you know. We would have been happy just living where we were, but you dragged us here, and only to leave us now, you know. They, they bowed down and began to pray. And listen to what Joshua says. Then Joshua cried out, O oh, sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you are going to let the Amorites kill us? If you had been, if we had been content to stay on the other side, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other li people living in the land hear about it, he's saying, you know, as if he's telling God, you know, what, what am I going to say now? This, you know. He goes on to continue. He says, They will surround us and wipe out our name. Wipe our name from the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? He says, This is not just bad for us. It's bad for you. God, aren't you, aren't you a little embarrassed here? This is a little tiny city. Verse 10, he continues, But the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. What are you lying on your face like this? He says, get up, Joshua. What are you doing? Joshua's like, I'm, I'm praying. <laughs> you know, he's like, stand up, stand up. What, what are you doing on your face? You know, if Joshua had to answer honestly, if he would have answered honestly, what he would have said is, um, I'm blaming you, God. This is your fault. Stand up, Joshua. It's like he's saying, it's not the time to pray. Right now. Right. Stand up. Verse 11, God then says this. He said, Israel has sinned. Now we say, because we may know, we know what happened. We just talked about it. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. Wait, wait, God. We know this story. Israel didn't sin. One man, just one out of these two million people, one man and his family, not everyone, just him. God, maybe, uh, there's a lot of people, maybe you were busy and didn't notice that. It was just one man. And God's like, shh, 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 I'm not done yet. Just simmer down. I'm not done. He said, Israel has sinned. 
and broken my covenant. They have stolen. And we say, God, 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 wait, 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 God. It's not, it's not a nation. It's not a they. It's a he. He. God says, shh, I'm not done yet. Hang on. They have stolen some things that I commanded must be set apart for me. God was like saying, as Donnie said earlier, this is like an offering to me. Do not take these things for yourselves. You leave them there. Don't touch them. Don't take them for yourselves. Just consider all of that gold and wealth and the livestock. Consider it an offering to me, your God. Leave everything there. He says, and they have not only stolen them, but they have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. Verse 12, that is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Verse 13, get up. God is saying, Joshua, stand up. Prayer time is over, Joshua. Now, go do something. Joshua, prayer t- it's not time to pray right now. It's time to stand up and go do something. Here's what he says. Command the people, purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. And you will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. Now, as we read this story, for us, in context of what we've been talking about here, wowzy, this is big. Here, in this story, right here, we get a glimpse uh, into what happens with groups of people, and those groups of people can be families, those groups of people can be, it's your, it can be your office, the people at work, in business, it can be just a marriage, just two people, it can be in friendships, just a small group there, two or three people. But in groups of people, we see what happens when one person acts irresponsibly. One guy, one guy acts out. In a group of people, in a family, in an office, in a business, in a marriage, one guy is irresponsible. One guy gives into his lust. One guy out of the whole community. One guy, but yet the whole community, the whole family, the whole, the whole office, the whole friendship, the whole marriage is impacted. Everyone associated with the irresponsible person is impacted. And we see this in this displayed in this big way in this story. Right. And we'll say, God, that that's not fair. You know, I, now we understand that that this one guy maybe get killed in battle and if this one guy pays the price, but it's not fair for everyone to be impacted by the irresponsibility of one person. And God says, you know, that's the nature of community, of family, of of being in a relationship with others. 
when one person is irresponsible, it not it not only do their harvest affect them, but it affects the people that they're in relationship with. Eventually, their responsibility irresponsibility is affects other people. And, and from our perspective, we would say, but you know, it's not fair. And we would say, it's but it's still true. Still, it's true. still true. You say it's not fair. I have been the best wife I can possibly be. Or you say, I've been the best husband that I can possibly be. And yet, your spouse has been irresponsible with their time or with their money or with the prescription drugs or with their morality or with their friends or with alcohol. It doesn't matter. They're irrespons- they have been irresponsible. But you have gone the extra mile and you have done over and over and over again the right things and now you find yourself asking the question, why, why am I having to suffer? You know, it's because this is the, the nature of irresponsibility. What you plant, I harvest if unconnected to you. Eventually, that happens. And that's why we look at some children, and they are making all the right decisions, but they keep getting caught up in the drama and the irresponsibility of their parent. And we would say, it's just not fair. And you would be correct. Uh, but it's absolutely true because irresponsibility and responsibility, they're, they're community things. They don't happen in a vacuum. They don't happen... Uh, they they don't happen all by themselves. They impact others, and it's not an individual thing. It's a community thing, and eventually it will affect people that are connected to exactly. My irresponsibility impacts you. Your irresponsibility impacts me, and that is why we must become very, very serious about irresponsible behavior. And someone may say to you, back off, that's none of your business. But the reality is this. The reality is this. Whether they want to own this or not, the reality is they are making it your business because their behavior directly impacts everyone connected to them. You know, regardless if you like confrontation, a lot lot of people don't, and I get that. Regardless if you do or not, this is the truth. Um, We see this lived out in the people's lives that are connected around us. When it's it's not addressed, no one wins. Um, If you let irresponsibility just slide, no one Wins. And, and this is our bottom line today, that the irresponsible person pays, and the people connected to them pay. So it must be addressed lovingly. Um, and we say, but it's not the kind and, and loving thing to do to confront someone. It, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't sound like something Jesus would do. Um, it's not very Christian-like. Wrong. Read the New Testament. Jesus confronted people. 
lovingly, but he's still confronting people. It's part of spirituality. Um, you owe it to your marriage. You, you owe it to your family and to your place of work to lovingly confront irresponsibility because irresponsibility is contagious, and I know you've seen this. Uh, eventually, everyone that's connected to the irresponsible person pays in some way for that irresponsibility. And, and as we said last week, what is rewarded is repeated. Um, so if one person becomes irresponsible and it's rewarded, other people tend to jump on and then you have a whole lot of irresponsibility. Um, and if you've been afraid to, to confront irresponsibility because of the response or if you've had misguided compassion, um, you know, well, they, they had, a, had a hard upbringing or um, they had a tough time. We can, we can say what we want, but a lot of times they're just excuses for us to use. And no one will win. It's, it's lose, lose, because when, when someone is irresponsible, it's going to affect the community, whatever that community is. And it's contagious. And what gets rewarded gets repeated. It's a community thing. Whether, whether it be a work thing or a family thing, a national thing, um, this is why we have to daily ask, am I taking responsibility for my life? For real. For real, am I? And if there is irresponsibility going on in, in my community, am I willing to step up and, and confront that irresponsibility? For real. Before it becomes my responsibility. Because it eventually will. You've been there. Uh, the rest of the story in Joshua chapter 7, it goes like this. Um, Joshua, quit praying, stood up immediately and went to do something. God said, get up. Get up. Um, it's not time to pray. Don't hide behind your prayers making irresponsibility look spiritual. Um, don't blame me. Stand up. You need to clean house. You need to clean up your camp. And you need to confront irresponsibility. Sure enough, um, they cleaned up the camp. They searched the camp. This one guy had stashed this stuff, some gold and some silver, and they put it back in the destroyed city. And they set an example um, with him and his family. And, and they attacked the city again, and they were victorious over AI. Yeah, that's how it ended. So that leads us as we wrap this up, to help us see what does that mean for us today, for our lives. The band is going to begin making their way up here to the instruments. We're almost done, but I don't want you to miss how we're ending today. We're just simply, we're not giving you a next step suggestion. We just simply want to ask you a series of questions that we want you to think about. And so here they are. Here are some questions for us. First one is this. Are you hiding behind prayer? Are you in your life praying instead of doing something? Ha have you been praying about the same thing over and over and over again? So how will you know if you're hiding behind prayer? Because prayer, we, we encourage prayer 
a lot of prayer. So how will you know, though, if you're kind of hiding behind prayer, like God said to Joshua, stand up, quit, stop, stop praying, it's, go do something. How will we know if that's true for us? Well, here's, here's the first way you might know. If God has already addressed something in his word, if he's already talked about it, then you don't have to pray about that. Let me give you an example. If you don't have a job right now, and there is an opportunity for you to work and to legally earn money in a moral way, you don't have to pray about that. Take the job. And here's why I know that. God has already talked about that in his word. You know what he has to say? He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. He's already addressed it. You don't have to pray. Is that the right job for me? I'm just try Harley, I'm just trying to pray. I mean, I've had some opportunities just praying about it. Is that the right one? Well, I'm going to tell you. Is it, is it moral, legal? You don't have a job right now? Uh, it's right. <laughs> just go take it. Quit praying about Quit hiding behind your prayer. Go take the job. God is not going to repeat himself. He's already covered that. In his word, just go take the job. You don't ever, ever have to pray about being honest. He's already covered that. In fact, it's pretty much common sense that honesty really is the best policy. You don't have to pray about paying your taxes. He's already covered that. You don't have to pray about being faithful to your spouse, your husband or your wife. God has already talked about that. He doesn't repeat himself. He's not going to come to you and say something different than he said in his word. He's not going to suddenly say this. So you know what? <laughs> Listen, I know what I've told them. But after all you've been through, I understand. Go ahead, develop that relationship on the side with that person. You have needs. I understand. Go ahead and do that. It's going to be okay. No, you don't have to pray about being faithful. You don't have to pray about whether you should sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or have sex before you get married, which is what I meant by sleeping with, by the way, if you... You don't have to pray about that. It's already covered. He's got it covered in his word. He's not going to repeat himself. And, and, and you, you can pray and pray and pray. But if God has covered it in his word, if he's already spoken about it, I believe he's saying to you, it's time to get up off your knee. Quit praying. Do something. Take responsibility for your life. Don't hide behind prayer. Now, there's another way. Because some of them aren't that obvious, right? I mean, because that's obvious. We know. You don't have to pray about being faithful to your spouse. Some, there's another way we can know whether or not it's time to act or pray. And this, this one is a little more tough. If we are trying to pray our way out of something that we have behaved our way into, it's time to stand up and do something. 
You can't pray your way out of something. You have behaved your way into it. I mean, go ahead and pray. We're not saying don't pray. Go ahead and pray. But here's the thing. You need to go ahead and get busy. If you have behaved your way into a problem, go ahead and start doing something about it. Don't pray instead of acting. But see, we have this tendency to substitute prayer for action and responsibility. Praying about something that we have been irresponsible about and not doing anything about, it it doesn't make us more responsible just because we prayed about it. It just makes us an irresponsible person who prays. Substituting prayer for responsibility doesn't make us responsible. And prayer is such a spiritual activity because we do encourage that, and it is important. But when we are being constantly irresponsible and we're praying about it, we feel closer to God because we've done this spiritual thing. We feel closer to God, but that doesn't mean we're really closer to God because disobedience and irresponsibility does not really make us closer to God. So if we're trying to pray our way out of something that we have behaved our way into, maybe God is whispering to us, Harley, friends, it's time to stand up. It's time to go take action. Go do something. For example... Maybe if if you have found yourself in a place where maybe you've abused credit cards and maybe you've given very little, you've saved nothing, you're buying things maybe that you can't afford, you can't pray your way out of that. We've behaved our way into that financial distress and we can't pray our way out of it. We need to get up and take action. Go ahead and pray. Uh, go ahead and pray, but take action. Don't substitute prayer for action. Because I have a feeling that God is probably not going to answer your prayer until you stand up and you start giving generously, you start saving, you start cutting back your lifestyle so that you can live in the black. It might mean that you have to downsize your truck to something smaller that you can pay for that's, that, that's not a payment that you can just afford to drive. It, it may mean that you need to go sell some stuff that you have payments on, that you've been accumulating some toys that maybe you have to sell. It may mean that you have to choose for you and your family to cut satellite TV. Maybe you need to take some action so that you can stop using these credit cards and buying some things that are driving you further into debt. I'm just saying, it's time, if we have behaved our way to a problem, go ahead and pray, but don't substitute action. Go do something. Don't hide behind your prayers, because we cannot... Uh, here, here's another scenario, and I know it sounds like we're hammering on us. We've, we've all been in situations similar to some of these, right? 
you can't you can't pray your way into a good relationship. If you constantly find yourself in bad dating relationships, until you decide to get out of your current unhealthy dating relationship and decide to go to the places where you can actually meet some healthy people, until you decide to quit going to the places where you constantly keep meeting the same kind of unhealthy person, God's not going to answer that prayer. I mean, he's saying, come on, stand, stand up. You have to go do something. You can't just pray about it. You have to go do something. And you already know, you already know some of the things that you need to do that perhaps you've been hiding behind with prayer. You want to make better grades as a student? You know. You're going to have to go study. God's not just going to help you pass a test. You have to go study. You want a better job? You might know there are some things you need to do. You can't just pray about a better job and hope one comes by. Maybe there are some things you have to go do, some, some education things you need, or some training things. Some, maybe there are some things you need to do. Pray, yes, pray. But you have to do some things as well. Which leads us to that pesky question. Are you taking responsibility for your life for real? Or are you hiding behind your prayer? And the way you know, has God already covered it in his word? And then the second thing, am I trying to pray my way out of something that I have behaved my way into? All right, now let's make this very personal, as if it hasn't been already. As I have been talking this morning, as Donnie has been teaching, has anything at all in your life come to mind? Are there prayers that you have been praying that if someone else were to hear those prayers, would they think, Man, I hear the words. I hear them praying a lot about this, but I, I don't see them doing anything. If that's the case, perhaps God is just saying to you, listen, it's time to stand up. Take responsibility. Don't hide behind your prayers. If you are praying for your kids, but you're not engaging with them, stand up. It's time to do something. If you're praying for your children, but you're not disciplining your children, it's time to do something. Now, here's the last question. I know you're going to be glad for this to end. This one's a little tougher. Are there irresponsible people in your circle? And their irresponsibility is going to impact you, but you're afraid to confront them. In your marriage, school, work, your circle of friends, somehow, it's going to impact you, but you're afraid that their, re their reaction, you're afraid of what it's going to be, and so you're excusing them. 
And in a sense, then we're asking, are you making it easier for them to be irresponsible? I mean, God bless you. God bless people who are compassionate. But if we're ignoring irresponsibility and excusing it away, listen, it is a lose-lose plan because their irresponsibility eventually becomes someone else's responsibility always. And the answer, as in this story, is to address the irresponsibility. And you may say, I I don't like this. Because I, I am. I am harvesting what someone else has planted. And it's not fair. And the truth is, you you probably are. You probably are. And that is not going to change until until either that person is outside of your connections or they are held they are held accountable for the irresponsibility and it's simply a reality so here's how we end for ourselves what are we going to do about our own behavior And then, in our circles, what are we going to do about the irresponsibility of the people who are close to us? Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to say, listen, friend, your irresponsibility is impacting everybody around you. It's time to knock it off. So for all of us, are we taking, are you taking responsibility for your life for real? Or perhaps are are you hiding behind prayer or do you have some misguided compassion? And if so, maybe God is whispering in your ear today, stand up, stand up. This is not the time to pray. This is not the time to excuse somebody. This is the time to act. Take responsibility for your life for real. Let's pray. Oh, God, this is so easy to talk about and so very difficult to do. God, as we have discuss things today. Some of us have thought about some actions that we need to change. God, some of us have thought about how we have hid behind some prayer. We've thought about how we've made excuses for somebody or we've made it easier for them to be irresponsible. We've thought about people that maybe were afraid to confront, but the reality is they're draining us financially or they're they're draining us emotionally or they're, they're just, they seem to be ruining our family or ruining our company or our, our work atmosphere. And somebody needs to lovingly speak up and have a difficult conversation. And God, we just don't want to have it. So God, we're asking you, please give us the clarity to help us respond as you want us to respond. And God, thank you for what we can become as a family. Thank you for what we can become in our place of work. 
Thank you for what we can become as a nation. If we will become a people who take responsibility seriously and we stand up, God, help us to stand up and take loving action. We need your help, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.